One thing you may not know about me is um, that uh, I rarely eat what is known as like a traditional meal at dinner. Uh, don't get me wrong, my wife is a great cook. I mean, she can really cook and she provides well for our family. And, but whenever she cooks a meal around dinner time, I just have a habit of whatever it is of grabbing a bowl of cereal and pouring out the, the cereal in the bowl and drowning it in milk. It's just what I've done. I've done it for a long time. I don't understand it. It's weird. Stop judging me, all right? And so uh, I've just done it for a long time. It, it became kind of a habit, I think, all the way back in college, and, uh, and I still do it today. In fact, early on in Larissa and I's uh, marriage, um, I remember her calling at work and saying, hey, listen, uh, if you want to eat cereal again for dinner, uh, you're going to have to stop by and get some milk. We don't have any milk at the house and so I was like, it's fine, I'll stop by, I'll grab it. Went to the grocery store, just like I was told, and, and went there and was beelining for the milk, and then I got distracted. I don't know if that ever happens to anybody else. Uh, I, I, my attention went somewhere else, and, and it was actually to this display of what is known as, a, it's like a hard shell covering um, uh, of chocolate. It's uh, called Magic Shell. And uh, it's a kind of chocolate syrup that if you pour over ice cream, it turns hard, and it is yummy. And so I hadn't had it since I was a little kid, and so I grabbed it, bought it, brought it home, and told my wife, I said, you're not going to believe this, they have magic shell. I don't, think she, I don't know if she knew what it was, but I said it was so good, but when I was little, my mom would hardly ever be able to give me any. She just put a little bit on top, but now I'm an adult, and so I'm going to buy it. I'm going to eat my ice cream and pour it all over it. And so she said, then she goes, that's wonderful, honey. She goes, where's the milk? And I was like, oh, the milk. I'll be right back. And so I had to go and get the milk. Now, I wish that was the only time that I had been so sidetracked that I kind of forgot why I was sent, but that it's happened actually several times in our marriage. Uh, my wife has asked me to be able to go on separate different occasions, and I brought back what I was not asked to bring back. So she kind of tells me that she doesn't want me to go and get stuff, but on occasion, she'll trust me enough. But when she does, to be honestly with you, she talks to me like a little child. She basically says, now, Michael, I need you to get milk from the grocery store. What are you going to get? Milk. That's right. You're going to get milk. And what else are you going to get? Nothing. That's right. You're going to get nothing. So when you come back and you bring the milk, make sure you come back and you bring the milk. Now, that might sound a little bit like nagging, but really, she and I both know it's necessary because I'm so easily distracted, I often forget why it was that I was sent. I have to tell you, in my own Christian life, that certainly is true. I found over the years that I am in desperate need of constantly be reminded, being reminded of what the mission of God is for our life. I am constantly going about doing a lot of things, but they're not necessarily primary. Oftentimes they are secondary. I get sidetracked, I forget about the mission of God, and I oftentimes forget about why God has sent me, why God has sent us here. We know that oftentimes distractions are what keep us through. Distractions are not always bad, sometimes they are, but we are definitely, 2020, we live in a year of distractions, we live in a year of COVID that it's hard to even make sense of what in the world this thing is. Even when I got it, I still don't understand it. And it seems like it keeps reappearing. And in the beginning, it was really confusing because we didn't know what this thing was, what it was going to do, uh, how many people it was going to harm. Uh, how was it going to impact us financially? How was it going to impact us as a church? When, could we, when should we close? When should we open? When can we gather together? When is it safe to be able to do so? And then to top it all off, we have this little thing called the election. Again, what most of you probably didn't even know we had. 
But it all serves as these incredible distractions. And I believe in my heart of hearts that these things have distracted myself and perhaps many of you from really remembering why God has sent us. Jesus, before he ascended to the right hand of the Father, said that we are to go into all the world and make disciples, which means that you are to be a disciple of Christ and you are responsible for making disciples of Jesus Christ as well. And so that's what I want to focus on this morning. I want to get back to the basics just a little bit, just a, a very important, not to nag, but a necessary reminder. And, and this is a perfect passage, I believe, for us to be able to do it, because in, in, in front of our very eyes in this text, we see Luke, be, or not Luke, but Simon Peter becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so we see what that looks like. And in the text, in this story, we see what is true for every disciple of Jesus Christ. Two things, just two things this morning. First of all, every disciple of Jesus Christ listens and obeys. Every disciple of Jesus Christ listens and obeys. If you look at the first three verses, what Luke is basically doing is reminding us and letting us know that Jesus' ministry and his popularity is now growing amongst the masses. And on this one occasion, not my words, his, on one occasion, Jesus is preaching down uh, near the Lake of Gennesaret, which is the same thing as the Sea of Galilee, another way of saying it. And he's preaching there, and a large crowd, such a large crowd is gathering around that the people in the back can't hear it, so they're pressing in to try to hear him. Well, Jesus knows that the people need to hear the life-giving word of God. And so he sees two boats over to the side. Uh, the owners of them are over kind of cleaning their nets. He calls one of them over. His name is Simon. He gets into the boat. They push off into the sea. And then he sits down and he begins to preach. Now, this was ingenious of him. Why? Because water doesn't absorb water, uh, a sound. It reflects sound by pushing out a little bit. What would have happened is his voice would have carried further. More people would be able to hear the life-giving gospel that he was preaching. It shouldn't come as a surprise of the creator of the world would understand acoustics and sound waves, does it? And so here in verse 4, after he preaches his message, we pick up here, and it says in verse 4, And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. Now, this is a mild rebuke of Peter. If you ever notice Peter, this is Simon, same guy. What, what we know about him is he, he really kind of rebukes Jesus on several occasions. This is his first of many. And basically what he's saying to Jesus is, hey, Jesus, leave the fishing up to me. I'll leave carpentry to you and I'll leave fish and preaching to you, but let me do the fishing. I am a professional fisherman. This would be a little bit like uh, for example, this would be a little bit like you having a job as a mechanic for 40 years, working on every make and model of car imaginable, and then the 22-year-old college graduate graduates, becomes your boss, he's never even changed his oil, and he gets in and he comes to you and he says, let me tell you how to do your job. At that point, you try to be not disrespectful, but you want them to know in a respectful way, you've lost your ever-loving mind. You don't know what you're talking about. And I think that this is what Peter is doing. Everything that Jesus had suggested was wrong when it came to fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And notice it says that he was, uh, Peter not only knew how to fish because he had grown up there and grown, on that lake, grown up on the lake being nothing but a fisherman, but he knew when, when to fish. It may seem strange to us, but they would fish at night primarily. And that seems strange to us today, but that's the only way to catch fish during this time. 
Because the fish that were in the Sea of Galilee actually spent the majority of the day in the middle of the lake in the deepest part, about 140 to 141 feet all the way down. And they would stay there during the day. But at night, when darkness came in, they would come up and they would go to the shores in the shallows. And that's where the fishermen would be able to catch those fish with their shallow nets. They didn't have larger nets. They were shallow nets. But now Jesus is telling him to do something that makes absolutely no sense. There's nowhere for for him to be able to file this away and to be able to understand it as a professional fisherman and as a successful one for the most part. And so what Jesus says is, we're to do everything opposite of what you normally do. It's daytime, and now what I want you to do is I want you to go out into the middle of the lake, and I want you to take your shallow nets, and I want you to throw it out for fish in the deepest part of the lake. So cognitively, none of this makes any sense at all. And not only cognitively, it's experientially, it doesn't make, it's not even reasonable what Jesus is ultimately commanding him to do. And it even goes against what he's feeling at the moment emotionally. The Bible says that they had fished all night and he caught nothing. And now they're at the point of just kind of cleaning up for the next day. They're cutting their losses. They want to go home. They're tired. They need to get some rest. The night is going to come. They need to go fishing again. But yet Jesus says in the middle of the day to be able to go. And as difficult as it was for him to get his arms around, here's the good thing. He listened and he obeyed. And he obeyed. The Bible says at the very end, he says, but at your word, I will let down the nets. One of the quintessential elements or marks of a disciple is that they listen to their master. We, as disciples of Christ, listen to Jesus Christ. A disciple of anybody is somebody who takes on and learns the teachings of their master, and then they teach other people to ultimately do the same. Well, you can't do either of those. Take on their teachings, learn the teaching, or teach anybody else to follow it if you yourself are not listening to what the master is ultimately saying. So one of the keys that we do as believers in Jesus Christ, when we gather together, we want to hear the word of God, amen? We need to be saturated in the word of God, not just on Sunday mornings and not just in small groups, but daily be in the word, allowing our master's word to speak to us. How can we follow or know his will apart from being saturated with that word? But what we find out is not just about listening, We seem to do a lot of listening, but we have to do a lot of doing. That's what truly makes a disciple. In fact, that's what we're finding out with Peter here. Up to this point, Peter had heard Jesus speak in in the synagogue. In fact, he had certainly heard him speak when he invited him over to his own house after uh, worship in the synagogue. But here, Luke seems to suggest something different is going on. He's listening, but he's also obeying. And it just so happens to be information that we're being given that's letting us know that that Peter is now becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's not just listening to him, it's obeying him. I don't know if you know this, and this might seem a little bit strange, but being in the church in a Bible-believing, preaching church is one of the safest places you can be. Do you agree? But it can also be one of the most dangerous places that you can be. See, it's one of the safest places that you can be because hearing the word can save your soul. Romans chapter 10 and verse 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God when it's preached. That's safety. 
We also know, though, that it helps us to be able to walk in fellowship with God by exposing our individual sins. It doesn't allow us to get too far away from God so we can enjoy that fellowship when he, when he reveals it to us and we begin to confess those sins to him. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So to be under it constantly, listening to it and hearing it and being saturated, exposed, what is not fitting to God, we instantly are able to repent of it and maintain that fellowship. And and not only that, it's also a a wonderful place because it protects us from basically destroying our lives and the lives of others. Psalm 109 and verse 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light into my path. It keeps us safe from straying one way or another. But even though this is safe to be in a place where the word of God is preached, it's also very, very dangerous. And it's dangerous for several different reasons. Number one is because we are in danger of deceiving ourselves. James 1.22 says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. So it's easy for us to be able to come and learn a bunch of knowledge and think that we are something, that we are sincere followers of Jesus Christ, but at the same time be in perpetual disobedience and not obeying what God is commanding us to do. We're deceiving ourselves. But the Bible also teaches us that we can harden our hearts. We can harden our hearts by grieving the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4 verse 30 warns us against this. And on top of that, what we can do is we can actually, by listening to the word of God, we can actually incur a greater uh, a level of judgment upon ourselves because of what we now know. The Bible actually teaches that, yes, those who do not know will be judged for their ignorance, but those who know more, like teachers who are teaching, will be held to a higher level of accountability. So for us, it's dangerous because what we're learning, we're ultimately accountable for. And the Bible teaches that again in Matthew chapter 11, verses 23, 23 through 24. But here's the question. And let me, let me say, before I move on to the next statement, this is why it's so important that wherever you go, wherever you go as for a job or for school, you need to know that wherever you're going, there is a Bible preaching church there. I cannot tell you over the years how many people have moved here and who have gone, how many college students who have gone out, and they have made their decisions largely apart. The question that they have not asked is, where am I going and where am I going? Is there a Bible-believing, solid body of believers in that location that I can join and I can go? They want to know how much the job pays. They want to know how good it is. They want to know how good the living area is, how good the education is. But so oftentimes, they never ask the question, is there a vibrant bible believing church in this particular area. Beloved, that's the first question you should be asking because it's a safe place to be able to be. It's to be with the body of Christ. But here's the idea. If it's dangerous, though, to hear the word of God, then why, when we don't obey it, then what would cause us not to obey it? We don't have enough time this morning to be able to cover all that, do we? But what, let me state within the context of the text One of the biggest reasons that we refuse to obey is because we don't understand what it is that God is doing and what it is that he's commanding. In other words, what he's commanding us makes no logical sense at all. Let me give you some examples of this. Maybe you've heard these things. When when, when when somebody, Jesus says, here's the instruction. Think about it for a minute. Take your Bible Christianese mind off for a second. When Jesus says, if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, 
turn and offer him the left. Does not anybody find this crazy? Is this the instruction that you give your child when you're home? If your child comes home and goes, hey, they slapped me on my right cheek, do any of us quote the Bible at this point? No, mama sits there and goes, oh, mama in this now. Mama in this now. I'm calling the play, right? What does dad say? Dad says, son, you slap his cheek. That's what you do. That's what you ought to do. Nobody, don't let him rough you up. Don't let him do you. This is crazy information and instructions that he gives. Or how about this? Somebody does something egregious to you. Forgive your enemies and pray for those who spitefully persecute you. Or if if you want to be great, hey, you want to be great? Then you need to be the least in God's kingdom and a servant of all. Hey, you want to be first? Then you need to be last. By now, I thought I would be first in something because I seem to be last in just about everything, right? So some of you are thinking, what do you do when you go to a person and, and they sit there and they say that, well, this marriage is completely fall apart and you say, hey, listen, let me encourage you. I know it's not good, but try to stick to that covenant relationship in which God has called you to. And we understand at that point, this does not make any sense at all. Sometimes when somebody comes and they say, hey, we're having really bad financial problems at the point, I begin by asking them a question I don't think that they saw coming and they don't want. My first question is, have you been faithful in giving of your tithes and your offerings as God has called you to? They sit there and they go, well, that makes no sense. I don't have enough money for what I need. Why in the world am I going to give more, more money out? Do you see how, how so like experientially and, and, then, and then intellectually and, and even emotionally that many times what God is calling us to do just doesn't make any sense. It goes against our experience. It goes against our own reason. It goes against everything else. But yet, this is what God calls us to do. He says, you don't understand it, but if you understood it, it probably wouldn't require a great deal of faith on your part. You don't feel it, but if you only acted on what you, you feel, it's probably not going to require faith on your part. So much of what I ask ask you to do is going to be against your experience. It's going to be against rationale and reason. And what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to trust me and let me to be able to take care of the rest. I'm asking you, even though it doesn't make sense, is to let down your nets. Nothing makes sense, but he says be obedient. And I think that this is oftentimes, by the way, why we don't see God moving more in our lives than usual, than, than we would love. We want him to be able to work, but how do we see him work? By faith. But if we're going to stop every moment that something doesn't seem logical, something doesn't seem make sense, that we don't feel like ultimately doing it, then how is God, what is God going to do with that? He honors that faithfulness despite the fact we understand it. Just like he says here, he says, we've been fishing all night. I'm a professional fisherman. But nonetheless, I'll do your word. I'll do what you ultimately want me to do. And that's what I'm asking you to do this morning. It's what the word is asking you to do this morning. There's some of you, you know the areas that you're obedient in your life. You know what's happening. But right now in your life, there's areas of obedience that you keep pushing back, pushing back, pushing back because of what the word's telling you to do. You sit there and say, this doesn't make sense in this area. It doesn't seem wise to me. Let me tell you what is wise to do the work and the word of the Lord that he calls you to despite whether you understand it or feel it or not. A disciple of Jesus Christ listens and he obeys. Second thing that we have is this, is every Christian of Christ receives new insight and new purpose. New insight and new purpose. Look, if you will, in verse 8. It says, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners 
with Simon. So in light of Jesus' miracle, Peter is humbled like never before. It's hard to know exactly why this particular miracle humbled him because he's seen miracles of Jesus Christ before, but this had a completely different impact on his life. If I were to try to take a guess of why, I would say, because this miracle was in the area of Peter's expertise. Again, he was an expert fisherman. He knew how to catch fish. He knew when to catch fish, everything he knew. And he was boastful almost to Jesus by going, well, you know what? I'll, let, I'll do what he tells me to do, but I know that this isn't going to bring about any kind of difference or change because I know better. Then Jesus revealed himself to him through the miracle of these fish, fish. And then what happens? He all of a sudden begins to realize, he comes to a point of humility where he says, well, maybe I don't know nearly what I thought I knew. Maybe I'm not nearly as powerful as I think that I was. And this is ultimately what happens in the life of every believer. God takes the same exact grace that he extended to him and he shakes you and I up. He begins to show us that we are full of pride. And why is that pride so bad? Because pride is the key sin in every individual. We can struggle with the specific uh, sin of pride but please understand, behind every sin that you commit, whether that be you struggling with some kind of sexual sin or some kind of materialistic sin, what rests at the core of all of it is the pride that you and I have to think this whole world is about us, to think that we determine what is right for us. In fact, when we talk about pride, there's a sinful tendency to believe that we exist for ourselves to promote ourselves, to glorify ourselves. And we see people and things in relation to whether they are good for us or whether they are bad for us. That's why everything and everyone else ultimately exists. We don't word it that way, but it's how we live. And this is the sin that has tainted Peter. Peter thinks, I know what it is to do what is right. And Jesus, through this miracle, demonstrates you don't know nearly what you think you know. And it humbles him. And God sometimes does this. He could do it through a miracle. But you know what else he could do it through? You and I through tragedy in life. Maybe planning our whole lives and saying, this is how the result of my life is going to be. And God takes it in a completely different direction. And you're, all, you're, you're depressed and you're like, well, wait a minute. I did everything I could to achieve this goal. You didn't reach that goal. And God is in essence telling you, I know better than you do. I know more than you do. You might be in a circumstance right now. You might be struggling even in a relationship or another problem in your life. And you, for the, for, for the life of you, literally sit there and say, I don't know what I have to do anymore. You're in the place that God would want you to be because this is the place he saves us. He rejects the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And what I love about this is he not only humbles them, but what he in essence says here is he doesn't leave them there alone. Look, if you're here and, 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 and again, all of us have gone through this whole idea. All of us have, have come to a place where we've been humbled before God. It happens to every believer in Jesus Christ, no matter who they are. It happened to Isaiah. He says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Things change. In other words, we have a different understanding of who we are when we get a clear glimpse of God. In the same way, we see the same thing happen with Job. Job seeing God's glory, just a glimpse of it. And this is a man who God himself said, nobody in the, all the world was more righteous than he. What does he do? He finds himself repenting in dust and ashes. And so here's what ends up happening. This is where Peter finds himself. He's broken over his sin. He says, God, I don't even want you to be around because if you're around, you're going to have to ultimately judge me. And this is what's great. 
God doesn't pile on. Jesus doesn't pile on. He gets them and he shows them a new perspective. He gives them a new insight to who he is in light of who Jesus is, but he doesn't leave them there. He doesn't pile on. He doesn't sit there and say, yeah, you thought you were big britches, right? Being all smart with me earlier there, thinking that I didn't know what I was doing, fishing, right? Look at all the fish we caught. No, he doesn't do that. What does he end up doing? He ends up not coming in, 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 in condemning him, but coming and comforting him. He says to him, do not be afraid. You know, one of the two biggest mistakes that I see with people oftentimes when I'm sharing the gospel with them, it's either one, they're too puffed up with pride. No matter what you say, no matter what scripture you share with them, they just think, I don't need this. I'm a good person. It's deadly, deadly. But you know what else is deadly? For a person to be so humbled and be so convicted by their sin and then to sit there and say, God could never forgive me because of what I've ultimately done. And I said, well, look, the first guy is underestimating his sin and his pride. The second guy is underestimating the grace of Jesus Christ. And both are equally as dangerous and will damn you. And so for you, if you're struggling and you think back, you said, man, my life can never be changed. I can never ultimately be forgiven for all that I've ultimately done inside of my life. What Jesus is saying is, hey, here's the good news. This is precisely why I came, is to save you from the wretchedness of that sin and to give you a new life and to give you a new purpose. We see that. It's not only, not, it's not only to be able to sit back and give him a new insight in light of who he is, in light of who God is, but also to be able to give him a whole new plan for his life. Notice what he says. Jesus continues, from now on, you will be catching men. You see the play here, right? He was catching fish. This was his occupation. He goes, now your whole life, you're going to have a completely different purpose. You're going to be catching men. To understand more clearly of what Jesus was saying, we have to understand the verb tense here in the Greek just a little bit. The word catching there, it speaks of a continuous action, ongoing action. It never stops. But with that word catching is also connected in the Greek, the word life. So literally he's saying to them, he says, you are being set apart to catch alive, to catch men alive. Now that sounds weird because usually when we catch fish, I don't know what you think, but usually I'm thinking fried up in a pan, right? That's what I'm thinking. Uh, My catching is going to bring death, all right? Fortunately for fish, I rarely catch them. But that's what I'm thinking. He's turning this and he's saying, this is not what you catch is not going to bring people to death. What you catch is going to bring people to life. It's going to bring them freedom. Because the same message that you enjoy that set you free from that condemnation of sin, that same message that you're going to share with others, and it's the same message you're going to set them free as well. He goes, and this is what I want you to do with your life. This is the new reason for your life. And we understand that he did it quite successfully. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 men plus their families came to faith in Jesus Christ in the first day. A little bit later, 5,000 people come to faith in Jesus Christ and his preaching. And a lot of us immediately are going to sit back and go, but I am not Peter. You're right. We're not Peter. We're not apostles. Most in this room, from what I know, haven't been called to full-time ministry or full-time missions or full-time anything in the ministerial area. Most of you were called by God and you have the same jobs. You live in the same home. You haven't left home. You're doing the same exact thing. And what he's saying is, but you too are to be a full-time evangelist. I'm not calling you somewhere else. I'm calling you to share and cast the net where you are. You are an evangelist. You are a missionary in the very job that you hold. 
How many Christians do we end up hearing sitting there going, man, I can't wait to be able to retire so I can finally start working for God and go somewhere else and really get busy about the ministry. You are about the ministry where you are right now. Those are the lost people. Those are the people, if they die, they are going to hell. They do not know Jesus Christ. And for you to think, oh, I've got to go somewhere else in the world to be able to tell somebody else, and you're not understanding and seeing the need right where you are with the gospel. This is losing sight and being distracted from what God has called us to do in the mission of the church. And so the truth of the matter is, let me, let me be very honest with you, and none of you are real surprised by this. I'm not real good at catching men. I don't really have the gift for that, really, to be honest with you. And you're like, you don't look all shocked and surprised. People are just like, why does nobody ever walk the aisle when you extend the invitation? I guess I'm not good at fishing. I don't know. Now, that doesn't mean that God's not working and people aren't getting saved. But I've known people that just have a gift of evangelism. It's like they speak. I mean, I could sit, I have been with people sharing the gospel where I laid out the whole gospel. You would have loved it. I could have put it in my doctoral dissertation and you guys would have given me an A and thought that is so well thought out. How profound. And then all of a sudden a guy comes next to me and goes, bro, all I know is if you don't repent, you're going to burn in hell. And all of a sudden they're like, all right, that sounds good to me. Let's pray. Right? And all of a sudden, and I'm sitting there going, what's wrong with this? And maybe that's the way that you feel as well. Let me read a quote for you just for a moment. Philip Ryken writes this. As we do these things, we trust in the sovereignty of God. Will we catch anything? Not always. And never by our own abilities. But that is hardly a reason to stop fishing. We should never let what may seem like an ineffectiveness in evangelism prevent us from doing what God has called us to do. In the same way that a fisherman keeps casting his nets, we are called to keep to keep sharing our faith. We may catch people in places where we least expect to catch them. We may bring in more people than we've ever imagined. After all, that's what happened to Peter at the Sea of Galilee. But whatever the results, God has called us to keep casting our gospel net because this is how he saves sinners. And he will save them. When Jesus called Peter to fish for men, he also gave him a promise, you will be catching men. How many of us have just gotten so terribly sidetracked over this last year? Over this last year, with all that's been going on, thinking our moment day to day, our health, and and how are we going to get it? Are we not going to get it? What about this election? What's going to happen if this person gets elected or that person gets the list? And somehow, some way, even though there's a good aspect of all of that, just lost the sight that people by the droves who God has placed in your life and my life are still not hearing the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ. And apart from believing in that message and hearing that message, there is no way to have eternal life. So here's what I, I, I love. And I'm going to finish with this last verse, verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed him. In other words, when they decided to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, they didn't sit there and say, hey man, guys, we have a little bit of a problem we got to pick up that boat and we got to carry it as we follow Jesus. That's going to be heavy. And what's interesting is he, he, he says, no, they leave the nets, they leave the fish, they leave everything ultimately behind. But how does that apply? Because God's not calling the majority of us to full-time uh, vocational ministry. Well, here's how I think it works. I think it works this way. When it says to leave everything behind, he's saying, leave all your idols behind and quit clinging to them and follow after Jesus. 
So your job, here's the thing, you may have gotten saved and a little has changed in this sense. You still have the same job, you're still making a paycheck, you're still paying bills, you're still buying a house, you're still buying a car. Here's the difference, those are not your God and they do not control you anymore. Your purpose in life is not to be comfortable. Your purpose in life is not to get a bunch of stuff. Your purpose in life is not to climb primarily the corporate ladder for your own self-glory and satisfaction. You may do a lot of those things, but now the purpose is for the glory of God and to make him known amongst lost people and to make disciples of them. That's what your desire is. But let me say one more thing of application. I have to believe in this church for 16 years, as long as we have been preaching about ministry and the gospel and missions, that there are still more who need to be able to hear to the call. I believe that God is calling more of you, more of this congregation to full-time ministry, to full-time pastoring, youth ministry, music ministry, youth, whatever it is, discipleship ministry, calling more people in full-time vocation of missions. But often what happens is they're struggling because sometimes things are going so well in their life. They think, well, you know what, we're, we're, we're part of, you know, a great community. What's not to love, right? Nassau County, awesome. Uh, there, there's so many things that we love. We love our job. We've got a great job paying here. We've got a great house. That's great. We've got a great church. We have an amazing pastor that we love so much. How could we ever leave him? And all of these things that we ultimately know, and, then, and when I hear somebody say that, say, but things are going so right for our life right now, why would we give this all up and go? And it makes me kind of feel a little bit bad, to be honest with you. And I get a little bit angry. Because in essence, what they're saying is, hey, bro, the only time people go into the ministry is when they're big, giant, fat losers where they can't do anything else in life. Everything else ends up failing, and they have no other option but to be able to go into the ministry. But that's not usually the call of people that I end up talking to that end up going into the ministry. Many of them have successful businesses, and they're doing well, and they're great leaders, and they have a lot of things going on. But the idea here is, is what God calls us to do is say, hey, I'm going to call you. It seems like the best for you right now, but I've got something even greater for you. Forsake everything and leave it behind and become fishers of men. And so whether you are somebody who remains in the house of God or remains in your job, guess what your call is? To forever be a fisher of men. Or whether God has called you into full-time capacity. Guess what God has called you to do? To be a fisher of men. You are to be making disciples. Let me ask you, church, what has God called you to do? He has called you to make disciples. He has called you to be a disciple. And you sit back and you say, well, are you talking to us like little children? No. I'm not trying to interrogate you or trying to overpower you. All I'm trying to do is remind you a desperate reminder that you need, that you are to share the gospel and make disciples while you are here. Do not be distracted. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness and for your word. And we pray right now in the name of Jesus, God, that you would move among us. That, God, there will be some that will be convicted by the word of God, that they will be convicted by their own sin. They'll call out to you even today. And today will be a day of salvation but that there will be many others that we'll be convicted and we'll sit back and we'll just go, the truth is, I've been so wrapped up in all of this. So wrapped up in all of this. God, I need to be able to repent and be right before you. Lord, may that, may we heed that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand? Let me say this one last thing right before we respond.
I had a, a person come to me, and they actually called me right after the election. And they said, Pastor Mike, I'm a horrible Christian. I was like, okay, what? Why do you think you're a horrible Christian? And he said, man, for the last month, he goes, I have probably talked to 20 people in depth, in depth, with my whole argument laid out on who they should vote for and why they should vote for it. And the entire month, I never shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with one person. Guys, there's an essence that you and I need to quit being distracted and focus on what God has called us to do. So let's respond as my brother plays.